Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephanie Sawyer Philippa Ballantyne With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 10. Hello, this is Philippa Ballantyne from Chasing the Bad, found at chasingthebad.com, and you're listening to Antithesis, Book 1. And this is the story so far. From Space Station Sidon, to Nineveh, to the lunar colony, Cassie Orenthal has been on the move. It was she who staked out Alex Hart and discovered his true identity as bounty hunter Alyssa Hartman. It was she who tipped Alyssa's quarry, Joss Kyle, off to the trap. It was she who took Joss Kyle to Nineveh and helped get him established as the king of his own private fiefdom, vetting information and collecting secrets for the resistance. And it was she who convinced her younger sister Jade to start a romance with the High Court judge Douglas Reeves in order to protect Cassie's commercial and political interests. Cassiopeia Orenthal is not just a commercial pilot, not just a revolutionary. She has another story, all her own. Chapter 3. Independence and Other Forms of Bondage Brittany Hydra, as unstoppable as both her namesakes, glistened as she pirouetted on her fingertips. Her body shone as she poured her all into the rehearsal as if it were the night's performance. She bounced and flew as if it expressed the very question of existence. She was here. Brittany didn't let herself become distracted, even though she was right at the center of the audience. She was the only one in the audience. Britt clamped her eyes closed and moved through the routine, each movement a euphoric exertion, each stretch a deferred agony. But here at least, she could move. Under the gentle pull of Luna, her twisted legs merely ached. With her powerful arms pushing against the floor, her crippled body soared with a grace all its own, skipping lightly across the stage, launching high and tumbling through the air. She knew she was the reason that Cassie kept the place open, even when it lost money in the off-season. Why for her? Brittany had never learned. But it was the chance she had left Earth for. On the stage, she took the gentle pull of Luna and, mixing it with old words and new rhythms, transmuted it into movement indistinguishable from the music. When she finished, it would hurt for hours. And that was just fine. She liked the pain. It reminded her that she'd earned the right to dance. The music was new. It hadn't been in the show before, but it didn't matter. It was her own composition, an act of worship, and her own private blasphemy. She danced Hamlet. 
Cassie Orenthal had little use for classics or for honors. Good writing was what kept her entertained and occupied on the long stretches in space. The finer things in life could fuck a goat in the livestock dome for all she cared. She had no patience for the pretensions of society types, though her business on Luna continually brought them into her orbit. There was space to fill, a galaxy of it, and she knew how to make it ring. She liked her music loud, her vids brash, her novels mean, and her fucking hard. Tenderness was a vice for people who had the luxury of growing up under the illusion that what happened in their neighbor's cubes was less fucked up than what happened at home. But even so, she sat in the audience, alone, going over the books, her two eyes drawn to the dancer again and again, like a pair of children on a water slide, plunging over and over again down into the enveloping moisture. The sinews in the dancer's flesh, moving like lovers under the skin, captivated her. Her brown body streaked with glitter, her deformed and useless legs moved atop the music like a piccolo solo. Hmm. Brittany. Brittany was perfection. Cassie tore her eyes away from Brittany and slid across the hemp weave seats. It was expensive keeping Kyrie in port. She tolerated no wastefulness in her employees and her informers. She sure as shit wouldn't tolerate it in herself. She was in port. She had to catch up on work that she couldn't do between planets. That's what she told herself. And she almost believed it. She moved her way up the ramp and into the lobby, past a series of posters on which Brittany's body hung contorted like a sculpture, in various colors, with captions from Hamlet's monologue reading progressively... How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in contemplation, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. In the last, she was bathed in golden glory, floating over a green floor. Joss once told her it reminded him of a firefly. She resented him for that, his yokel manner, his provincial Terranism. She'd never seen a firefly. She didn't want to. The thought of being pressed down under all that gravity was suffocating. It was bad enough traveling under heavy G to accommodate her passengers or to get in condition for surviving on Nineveh or Sidon for more than a day. To voluntarily go down into a gravity field where she weighed 65 kilos? It was a miracle the species had ever learned to walk upright with that fucking planet pulling them down. But in the poster, Brittany floated above the green like a Buddha in the glory of enlightenment. The poster matched the carpet, a restful, deep, mossy color, stretched in front of her and up the stairs. The line for the box office was already forming out past the cordons as she loped up the stairs four at a time. She kept the office for the sake of appearances. Even though she could technically do all her business from Kyrie or from any hotel room with an encrypted line to the backbone, she needed a public, legitimate face on Luna. It was healthy to force herself out among the people rather than staying sequestered on the ship and only coming out to see Jade, and maybe a few others. It kept her from becoming, in fact, what she already was in truth. It wasn't just a matter of self-discipline. She knew it was healthy to force herself out among people, but that didn't matter to her as much as the fact that her face in the streets reminded people that she was still around. Without that constant awareness, she was sunk, and she knew it. There were eight things humans could be relied upon to do without fail. Eat, shit, play, fuck, dope, fight, kill, and die. 
Cassie had a finger or two in each relevant field, and to stay viable, to keep the board from poking around too closely in the dope, fight, kill, and die departments, she needed to be seen as a community asset. There was little more endearing to the community than playing patron d'outs, and little more impressive to her underlings than holding court in an opera house. Court was in session. She strode up to the back door, sweeping the air before her with her hands as she motioned the guard out of the way. The narrow hallway ran parallel to the waiting room, and she could see the supplicants through the one-way mirror, but she didn't study them this time. This was a bare minimum day, put in an appearance, and then gone. Cassie caught their faces and got a quick read on each of them. She counted three, then she brushed past the door and locked herself in the office. The decor was expensive and as spare as her taste dictated. The desk was glass over carbon fiber scaffolding, and the chairs were mesh fabric stretched over their frames. The transparency and strong lines kept her clear. The walls were hung with tapestries handwoven by the artisans at New Zion in Tycho as dowries for the child brides. She bought them from a pair of girls at the Bryce Bazaar, trying to buy their way out of a harem they'd been promised to. They wavered softly in the breeze of the ventilation system, dampening the stone walls and making the room feel more like a place for humans than a stone tomb. They were here to remind her what her empire was built on. Behind the desk was the only bare stone in the room. Carved in bas-relief was a geometric abstract that drew the eye inexorably down to the woman behind the desk when she was sitting there. The complex pattern concealed an alcove with her private head, a closet, and a shower. She ducked into the invisible opening and pulled the pin out of her chignon, tossing it into the long, low shelf and letting the hair fall to her shoulders. Normally, she kept her ship suit on when she was on Luna. It helped her keep a low profile, kept people from making the connection between Cassie, the working-class shipmistress, and the Green Lady, who ran the opera house and oversaw the underworld. Besides, she didn't have the inane affectation with textiles that first-generation immigrants seemed to have. Clothes were functional things in her universe, good for regulating temperature, protecting the skin, wielding power, and sometimes arousing a lover. But most of the time, they weren't necessary, and when they were, they weren't worth going to a lot of trouble about. She dressed for comfort. But holding court was a different matter entirely. At 179 centimeters, she wasn't a small woman, but next to the men in her organization, she was puny. These large men, many of them from Darkseid, enforced her will and kept her organization running. The supplicants who came to see her at court were just as often emigrant Maasai as they were little Welshmen, and she could not risk her ability to command the room for something as petty as comfort. When they came into that office, they did not see a mercenary girl who had clawed her way out from under the great machines with her band of orphans. They saw the terrifying goddess who they heard tales about in the dark corners of the city. They saw a capricious black widow, a sex goddess with a thirst for blood and power that matched Kali's. They saw a woman who, at the age of 12, had castrated and disemboweled the owner of the brain-damaged brothel with her bare hands, and who had not stopped her rampage until she lay panting at the top of the heap of bodies that made up her organization. Which was why she stayed on Luna as little as possible, 
and never visited Darkseid. She peeled the ship suit off and tossed it into the laundry slot on the wall. Walking around in it for the better part of two days had made it a little ripe, and she'd want something fresh after she got done with her meetings anyhow. She pulled off her panties and tossed them into the slot as well, and took a quick rinse in the shower. The air vents blasted her dry. Turning to a cubby hole in the wall, there was no need to strap the clothes down or lock them up in a constant gravity environment, she pulled out her body stocking and stepped into it. It was a simple dancer's leotard, the same color as her own skin. Not that many dancers on Luna felt the need for them. On this one, the neckline cut underneath the bust rather than over it. The boots came on next, thigh-high black pseudo-suede with buckles up the sides. Once they were on, a corset of dark green satin and gold threads slid down over her shoulders, and she backed into an appliance that tightened the laces. When cinched, it narrowed her waist, flared her hips, lifted and separated her breasts. Over this went the faux leather overcoat, which swept down to her knees and fastened up to her navel, then split up to her shoulders and flared over them with ear-high fins. The deep green of the overcoat made her red hair blaze. She used a pencil to add long, tailing highlights around her eyes, sweeping back and up to the hairline, then clasped a long chain around her neck. Dependent at the end, a cryptic phallus, dangled between her breasts. The cumulative effect was one of a capricious Shinto goddess. Even in this skeptical worldwide age, it was enough to keep the aura of danger and sexual power clinging to her like a film of oil. She stepped back, donned the sunray headdress, and looked at herself in the mirror. The body staring back at her seemed like a madam from a temple brothel, and Cassie had to suppress a snort. Men would fall for anything. The office light was garish and flat. She sat down in her chair, as if it were a throne, and tapped the touch-sensitive surfaces on her desk. The display listing the vital information for her three appointments appeared in the glass surface before her. The first was a restaurateur seeking a loan to plant a franchise in First Town on the South Pole. Should be a straightforward assessment. The second was Zylar, her lieutenant from the old days in Darkside that the Hoi Polloi called the Right Hand. There were some irregularities in his most recent set of books, even allowing for the level of skim she normally tolerated. That could get messy. The last was a new immigrant with a request that didn't parse in any grammar she knew. He must have bribed the gatekeeper to get on the roster. Oh well, it won't take long. And it gave her a reason not to think about Brittany. Or Joss. A small icon blinked unobtrusively at the bottom of the interface. Surveillance reports. The ones she'd been waiting for. The ones on Doug and Jade. She angrily tapped the cancel button. She did not want to look at them. There were some things she didn't have the stomach for just now. I'm not that drunk. She was ready. Her finger touched the comm button on the underside of her armrest. Send in the chef. Her legs crossed and her pelvis cocked up to her chest, her hands twin knots digging into the ground as she pivoted between them like stilts Brittany moved from the soft matted stage onto the hard aggregate flooring and to her suspensor unit. 
When Luna City was built, it had been designed as a supply depot. Its halls were impossibly wide, built to carry mining cars on maglev tracks under the floors. When the iron vein ran out in 2102, the Kaiser Foundation bought the complex from Capstone Mining and opened the city to civilian colonization. One of its selling points was accessibility for its chronic disabled patients, and during the first phases of construction, it had continued the practice of putting maglev tracks into every corridor. Brittany's suspensor chair floated on the tracks, and on them, she could go almost everywhere. Where they didn't run, the chair moved on its own built-in wheels. She sat down on the ground and wrapped her fingers around the grab bar, then pushed off the floor and swung her body up into the chair. It was far more elegant than the bulky, clunky wheelchairs that she'd had to use in Wellington. Pulling her legs into a lotus, she sat back against the low backrest and, for the first time since she'd finished her routine, sighed with relief. <sighs> Every muscle hurt from her groin upwards. The arthritis made her joints ache like so many burns that never healed. Her tendons, their suppleness already degenerating, felt like she'd been doing marathon yoga. And in seven hours, she'd do it all again, and more. She'd been born this way, the body of a full-term baby, the legs of a five-month fetus. They'd never caught up, and even now, in her 23rd November, they looked like a four-year-old's legs. It was only her girlhood obsession with acrobatics that had kept her from developing the Yoda-like body that most people confined to a wheelchair acquired after only a few years out of the womb. When she hit puberty and the other problems showed up, the arthritis, the hips separating as they broadened while her legs remained stunted, her aunt had put her under hospice care and forced her to discontinue gymnastics. It was then that she'd decided to make it off-world, where the smothering embrace of Mother Earth wouldn't speed her early end. Brittany tried placating her, even to the point of offering herself up for mock sacrifice with the Earth First Church, but the gods of Terra didn't give any more of a shit than the god of her Christian scientist parents. So, she'd pulled herself up, saving what little money she could make legitimately as an invalid with no business training, adding it to what she could get donated by friends, keeping in shape by putting her books in pillowcases in her room and working out while the nurses and orderlies weren't around. She got her exit visa at 17, as soon as she was legally eligible. But the money wasn't enough. Her time in Earth First had broken her of her provincial attitudes about love, and because of this, she found a way to leverage her romance with Mika, one of the hospital orderlies, to raise the last of the money. Mika's friends paid her 30 credits ahead, and it didn't take long to make up the couple thousand she was short. It was worth every bottle of mouthwash she went through. It got her off-planet. She rode the maglev route down the stairs backstage and circled around the wings to the green room. The south-facing window was just catching the earth rise, and Brittany resisted the urge to raise a triumphant middle finger to the old bat. No one was in the room, but bitterness was unbecoming, a prima ballerina, even one without functioning legs. The blue crescent peeking over the mountains looked better as a sky ornament than it did up close anyhow. But one thing moving off-world didn't cure was the mealy-mouthed sentimentality of the human species. Earth's gravity held the moon perpetually bound, like a mother unwilling to let go her child. 
people who emigrated here were supposed to be the best and brightest, the most educated, the most resourceful. Yet, even here, there were people that worshipped that greedy hunk of rock as a goddess. She shook her head and turned away from the window. Her stomach hurt, her joints ached, the heater in her seat kept her warm, but even so the sweat evaporating off her gave her chills. The glitter stripes weren't enough to keep her shoulders warm, and the aches were starting. Taking painkillers would dull her performance even eight hours from now, and she couldn't bring herself to get the neural implants. It was hooey, she knew, but she didn't trust surgeons. Too much early training and she didn't want nanites in her body. She cast one last glance out the window at the earth, smiled, and moved her suspenser chair towards the office door at the other end of the green room. She knew better ways to relax than gloating over old triumphs. And since the investigation against our payoffs to the customs officials dried up last year, we've been able to play on the paranoia and cut back on our squeeze fees. Zyler punched the button on his PPD. By the time they start demanding more, we'll have up the rates. And no problems with cargo going to people we don't like? Cassie's stomach growled audibly and she mentally kicked herself. Hunger made her surly and she couldn't eat when she was giving audiences. Nope, everything running smoothly for once. Zyler smiled flirtatiously at her. He always did. She reluctantly restrained herself from knocking a few of his teeth in for it. Good. Cassie smiled with her lips, allowing him the moment. Her eyes didn't smile. Everything he said checked out, and that was the trouble. It checked out just well enough that she could piece together the rest of the story. She knew his credit accounts were flusher than they should be, and it wasn't because he was taking a bigger-than-normal skim. Maybe he had some investments he wasn't telling her about. Maybe he had a side operation he built up on his own. Maybe. But she had a report of a security breach in her hands, and it was something he should have known about. If he did, someone might be paying him off. Her stomach lurched hard. After everything she'd probed him on during the meeting, he still didn't know why he was here. He didn't dream she had caught on to what he was up to. He didn't give her that much credit. Which meant that he either didn't know about the breach, or he was hiding it from her. It didn't matter how long he'd known her. It didn't matter how well he could predict her or how many of her weaknesses he knew. It didn't matter that he'd been Jade's first lover and that she still had a soft spot for him. Neither possibility boded well. She'd known him since he was a pimply teenager running office errands for Locks Corps, and he'd always been reliable. But the thing that made him useful was his ambition. He'd had power over the docking operation for a few years now. He may have built up his own support that didn't rely on her. He was using bookkeeping tricks she'd taught him to hide his income sources from her. He didn't fear her anymore. Cassie knew this because he'd answered her summons. Her bile settled down to a low, angry burn in the hollow yawn of her hunger. He wasn't even sweating. She didn't know what to make of him. Uncertainty was not among her favorite things. It looks like everything is running smoothly. The last item of business I have here is... Oh, yes. She grimaced and looked at him significantly. Any troubles with leaks? 
No, no troubles at all. Really? I have a report here that one of our loaders went missing three weeks ago. Nothing missing. He got family on Nineveh. No mystery. He cleared this with you? He hesitated. He did. He did. Xylar nodded imperceptibly and grunted. Hmm. He emailed you after he was gone. She watched him carefully. He wasn't giving ground, but where before he was looking straight back at her, now he couldn't hold it and kept dipping his eyes. Still not much of a chess player, Zai. Not thinking ahead. Next time you're in baggage claim, take a look in the vomit bags for your brains. She let it spill out of her mouth like the lunch she hadn't eaten. You let a man with knowledge of our operations leave the planet without a debrief, without a tale, and without explanation. You passed him leaving your sphere of influence without informing the me... The docs are my problem, Cassie. I'll report everything to you. He held his fingerless left hand up to her, reminding her of the slave trader he'd saved her from. You report security problems to me. Nobody has seen or heard from him since. He's your responsibility. You fucked up. We don't micromanage, remember? Cassie stood up and walked around the desk. She didn't come right up to him. He was taller than her, and she didn't want to sacrifice her advantage of presence. Instead, she slipped her right hip up onto the desk and let her leg dangle out from under the coat. His eyes went straight to it. Listen to me closely, Xylar. She waited. She knew he didn't hear her. She mentally counted to three and then snapped at him. Xylar! He started and looked up at her. You find out where he is. And who he's been talking to. I want to know why he disappeared. I want to be sure. She tapped the call button on her coat cuff, and her guards came in the door and stood menacingly on either side of it. Find him. Or find a new oxygen supply. He didn't react. She didn't expect him to. He wouldn't give his feelings away when she was getting to him. They'd both played this game far too long for that. As the door slid shut behind Xylar, she nodded at the guard on the left. Zaire, keep a tail on him. She waved the other one out as well and slipped off the desk. She didn't want to go up against an old friend. Didn't relish that kind of victory. Bloody long days. If she were on Nineveh, Joss would pour her a drink. But she wasn't. She was here, on Luna. How long until she could lift again? Get away. Feel space beneath her again. I have to eat something. She hadn't had to force herself to eat since she was 15, but this trip was different. With treachery sprouting on every side, she couldn't stomach anything. Gods, I feel sick. Cassie leaned over the desk and took a couple of deep breaths. She closed her eyes and remembered the feel of Kyrie, her hull wrapped securely around the cosmos, her deck plates vibrating gently with the low, constant moans of the mass drivers that moved her between planets. The thought... Like gravity settled her. Only one more meeting to go. Then she could get a late lunch and get out of the costume. She could have a bath and forget who she was for a while. She swept back behind the table and sat down in a cloud of her own iconography. Next! The newcomer, fresh off the docks. He walked haltingly, stumbled, kept trying to overcompensate for the newfound lightness of his body, then pushing too hard again and overextending, lurching violently forward and struggling to maintain his balance. In front of her, he stood with his hat in his leathery, loose-skinned hands like a shy schoolboy waiting for permission to speak. He didn't raise his eyes to meet hers. She sighed heavily. What do you need? 
Senor, I... He halted and tried to recollect his composure. She took the opportunity to look him over. Easily in his seventies, no rejuves, stooped shoulders. Central American acted like he was used to taking orders. How did he ever get off planet? She forced a gentle smile so it would sound through her voice. Go on, senor. He looked up at her for the first time, his eyes set very deep behind heavy, drooping lids and filled with regret and trepidation. I... He paused again, took a breath, and plunged on. I looked up at the night when I was a little niño, and I loved the beautiful round moon. I want all my life to come here. I saved for years, every penny, to buy a ticket. I lived 78 years. My wife died. We have no children in Guadalajara. He stopped. He swallowed. I am a proud man, senora. Never need charity. But now I get here, I do not want to go back. No reason. She smiled, not having to force it this time. He didn't have charm, but when she saw him, small and frightened in her presence, she couldn't help but melt. I love a dance, senora. My wife, she danced for years. I want if you could see to hire. The words seemed to leave him just as he needed them most. What can you do? She used her gentlest voice, as if speaking to a lover. All of it. I ran theater for 40 years. Take a ticket, take out garbage. No. No, that won't be necessary. He dropped his head, defeated. He mumbled, Gracias, senora, between clenched teeth, and started shuffling gracelessly towards the door. No, wait, that's not... She growled to herself for breaking character. What is your name, senor? Juarez. Senor Juarez, I meant that a man of your experience shouldn't be picking up garbage. I'll have to find an opening, but we can find something, I'm sure. Come back tomorrow and we'll have something for you. He met her gaze again and bowed slightly. Gracias, senora. This time there was a smile in his voice. He donned his hat with a flourish and made his juddering way out the door. How did he get in here? Cassie knew before she finished asking herself. It was because of the public image she cultivated. In the same way that Earth's governments would never let them go, everyone in Luna City knew that she ran an open shop, and this old man had been the first in a long time to call her bluff. The floor of her small throne room was silent. She was alone. There were no more appointments today, only paperless paperwork, and that meant surveillance logs of Jade and Doug. She straightened up and went into the head to wash the makeup off her face. Joss, I really could use that drink right now. Gods, I'm hungry. She swallowed a couple mouthfuls of water and shuddered as the cold crept down her esophagus and coated her stomach like a slime. She stomped her feet, pushed the stress and anger right out to the surface, and screamed. Then, eyeing herself fixedly in the mirror, she said, Well, you wanted your revolution. You got it. Deal with it. Cassie's office seemed smaller now that she wasn't mentally in character. Her stage felt like a prison, and she wanted nothing more than to get gone, escape to Reservoir Cave, have something to eat, anything but finish her work. Anything. But it had to be done, and she was goddamned well gonna do it and get it over with. The reports were thorough and depressingly ordinary. Jade had her daily work routine, which she followed slavishly. Work, a walk in the park, a film, then home late to meet up with Doug. She looked happy 
in the surveillance photos. It hadn't just been an act. Damn. Doug's routine was less predictable. His docket kept him hopping between his regular courtroom and the large multi-judge panel that he often sat on. He made frequent visits to the boardroom for meetings that weren't on the schedule. He received visitors that weren't on his itinerary and didn't show up in customs lists. What is he up to? And why hasn't she told me? But the field of answers was vanishingly small. Either she did not know, or she'd turned and was working with him. But there was no way to know yet. God damn it! Cassie smashed her fist down on the glass. What's wrong, honey? Soft and slick, like an ambitious eel, the voice belatedly registered with her. Brittany. You've been listening to episode 10 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal and Philippa Ballantyne as Brittany Hydra. Some sounds courtesy the Freesound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Coming soon from Prometheus Radio Theater. Payment has been deferred. No, you can't. A psychic event. I saw a ship. They were slaughtering the crew. There are crations on our doorstep. This is Terrence Metcalf, commanding CNV Titan. The compressed wreckage of the ship will enter Quintel's atmosphere and rain death on 10 billion people. I will die for this, Metcalf. Will you die to stop me? Save the damn galaxy yourself. It's what you've been dying to do, so die doing it. There was a detonation off starboard at the docking ring. It was Shuttle Alpha. It was Erla. Command deck to all hands. Abandon ship. Prometheus Radio Theater presents a six-episode Arbiter Chronicles event. Contents under pressure. What are you going to do? I'm going to ram the Titan right down their throats. Premieres September 26, 2008. www.prometheusradiotheater.com In accord with the new format, there's the featured promo this week. The new season of Arbiter Chronicles is going on now, and it's worth the bandwidth and the time to check out. Stephen H. Wilson, who plays Percy Scott in Predestination, as well as a couple other characters you haven't met yet, continues to experiment with his format and come up with fabulous new shows and stories over there. 
Around here, I'm crazy busy. The latest news is that I'll be sitting on two panels at SteamCon Halloween weekend. One devoted to the science of Victorian times and the other devoted to multimedia production. If you're in the Bay Area or you can make it here for Halloween weekend, join me there. We'll grab coffee, you can see some of the best costumers and prop makers on the West Coast, and the parties are going to be something spectacular. Go to www.steamcon.org to find out more. So, anyway, I may be busy and borderline irresponsible, but you guys are awesome. The feedback keeps pouring in. I've got almost enough to populate a whole other feedback show, which I'm going to do in another two weeks here. Watch for it at episode 12.5. I did interviews this week with Tail Chasing and Patio Media Chat, which should be available in a few weeks, as well as with one of my own favorite podcasts, Larry Bushy's Going Linux podcast, devoted to the trials and challenges of migrating to Linux from Windows or Mac. I'll let you know when the episodes are due to post, in the unlikely event that you can't get enough of my ego here. I've got a photo shoot scheduled in a few minutes for the calendar I'm releasing this year. I'll update you on that soon, but right now I gotta run or my model and my lighting assistant are gonna have my hide. But I gotta give a quick shout out to Philippa Ballantyne, whose time in this story has finally arrived. Only one line this week, but a lot more next week, and she does a hell of a job. If you disagree and think this production, the acting, or my attitude stinks, you can email me at dan at jdsawyer.net, and you can leave feedback on the blog or on the antithesis line at 206-350-2340. If you like the show, yeah, you can leave feedback for that too. Questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome. Hearing from all of you never gets old. And we're on iTunes now, so tell your friends, Antithesis is easier to find than ever. Until next week, what is Doug up to that he keeps taking so many unusual meetings? Is Jade still loyal to Cassie, or has she switched sides? And how did Brittany get into Cassie's inner sanctum without having to dodge through the security gauntlet? Find out next Thursday, and until then, remember... It isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.